is Bloomberg Surveillance. Monetary policy at the near zero lower bound should be asymmetric. They should be looking to overshoot rather than undershoot. The market, after many years of these low rates and QEs, is, has lost some of its calibration. We have the highest level of inequality of any of the advanced countries. When you start looking at these statistics, you have to be worried. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Michael McKee and Tom Keen, Forex front and center this morning. The yen a little bit stronger earlier. Right now, I'm going to call it fractionally weaker. But the yen, the story, Thursday, Friday, and into this Monday, a jobs week Monday, 106.63 right now. Bloomberg Surveillance, and of course, we do do a Forex brief. Brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. You also look at yen, dollar yen, 106.62, 108, 107, stronger, 106.63, 105 would be interesting. Jeff DeGraff of Renaissance Macro, adamant we see stronger yen. That is the trend. Euro yen, 122.42. Over the last number of days, stronger yen, weaker euro, although this morning euro strength with a 115 print, now 114.75 on the euro as well. Um, I, I guess what you do when a deal goes bust is your PR department goes, excuse me, you can buy back shares. It's an after merger bonus. David Wilson, that's where we are. Yeah, exactly where we are, Tom. This is all about Hal Burton and Baker Hughes. The oil services companies called off their proposed $28 billion merger in the face of opposition from U.S. and European antitrust regulators. And here's your point. Halliburton will pay a $3.5 billion breakup fee to Baker Hughes, which said the money will go to buy back stock and debt. Both stocks actually uh, higher in early trading. Halliburton about three-quarters of a percent. Baker Hughes up about half a percent. And since we're talking drilling, we might as well mention uh, we had earnings out from a Diamond Offshore Drilling, and that stock's up 3%. First quarter profit unexpectedly rose thanks to cost cuts and greater operational efficiency. Revenue beat analyst average estimates in the Bloomberg survey. Uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals up 1%. Study results showed the drug maker's proposed treatment for osteoarthritis relieved pain in patients who weren't helped by other medicines. Ferrari's up 1%. The automaker set to name Chairman Sergio Marchione as chief executive, according to people familiar with right. the matter. Now, Marchione already serves as CEO of Fiat Chrysler, which took but the Ferrari public in the U.S. last year. We should clarify, because we all think of Ferrari as part of Fiat. It's a separate company now. Well, I mean, it, it, it is a standalone company in the stock market. Nonetheless, uh, Fiat Chrysler is still in control. Okay. And speaking of control and deals, you got a company called Opower up about 31%. Yeah. They provide Internet-based software for utilities. Uh, Opower accepted a $532 million takeover offer from Oracle. The deal followed Oracle's agreement last week to buy construction software maker Textura for $663 million. So it's all about uh, focusing on specific businesses when it comes to software. Uh, 599 employees, Arlington, Virginia. Dan Yates running the shop, OPWR. Indeed. It's all, it's all one word, O-Power. Indeed it they is. They hired eight consultants to come up with that name. Yeah, they probably did. 
Apollo Education up 11.5%. This is the company that owns the University of Phoenix. A buyout offer for Apollo was raised by 5% to $1.14 billion. Apollo Sooner, mm-hmm. a group led by Apollo Global Management. No relation. Uh, GNC Holdings up 6.5%. The seller of nutritional supplements is yeah. looking at a possible sale of the company and other options. GNC hired Goldman Sachs as an advisor. David Wilson, thank you so much for the Monday Brief. The VIX again trading now, 15.79, futures up 7. Uh, this is a wonderful time to talk to Brian Jacobson of Wells Fargo. He does something boring, which is portfolio strategy, and everybody's heads is so a jumble now with what we've got that it's just I can't think of a better time to speak of. Dr. Jacobson, good morning. Oh, good morning. Thanks what, for having what, me back. Let me give you an open question, which I usually don't do, but I'm going to do it here. My head's spinning. What's the single message you have for petite, for people who feel like they're way behind with retirement planning? Well, I think that if you're behind on retirement planning, start saving more. I mean, really, that's what it all boils down to. Uh, you know, so many people try to make their investment performance do the work that their savings rate should be doing instead. There's only so much that your investment returns can really do for you. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, that uh, wonderful power of the world as far as with compounding interest, but you really do need to make those contributions. Do it early, do it often, do it a lot. Are people doing it? Uh, we, we have seen the data on savings rate uh, rates go up, and it suggests that you know people are getting scared. They're finally believing they're in a low interest rate environment from from now till forever, and they're going to have to save more in order to be able to ever retire. Yeah, one of the challenges with that is people buy into the idea that uh, they're never going to be able to retire or that uh, their investment returns are going to be somehow subpar over the foreseeable future. Some people just throw in the towel. They just say, oh, well, what's even the point then? I'm just going to have to work forever, so why even bother saving for retirement? So that's one of the dangers of uh, going out there with the message of saying that you should just learn to expect that you're going to have uh, lower rates of return going forward. I think that really a more constructive message is that you still do need to save for retirement, and there still are investment opportunities out there. It's just you might have to be more patient for them. Some of the data that I really like looking at, and these people do a tremendous job of doing research, is from the Employee Benefits Research Institute, the EBRI, and uh, they, they send out periodic notes, and one of them is that, um, you know, as far as the most recent one from their database, uh, people are participating in their retirement plans, the 401k plans. They found that 70% of 401k plans include target date funds, and that a lot of people, it's the default option for them. And so it's an easy way for them to actually at least get the ball rolling. So, you know, people have increased their savings rate, um, and people do appear to be making those contributions. And also, I think this is important, employers are beginning more and more to match those contributions because if you're not taking advantage of that full match, you're kind of leaving money on the table. When I look at this, I look at the linkage that you do, which is so great, Brian Jacobson, of quantitative analysis with a basic emotion of what do I do with my money. I'm not a big fan of beta. And one of the beta-free things out there, folks, is a strange thing after William Sharp, the Sharp ratio. You look at the return as compared to the risk taken of small caps, mid caps, and large caps. And you say it's pretty clear mid caps win. Is that still true now? 
You know, I believe that it's even more true now because of the underperformance of mid-cap stocks. So if you just sort of look at it on an unconditional basis, so you just do a simple return over the entire history that you have available to you. I've looked at uh, using some of the data from um, uh, Fama and French that they provide uh, going back to 1926. And, you know, they're, they're pretty close as far as the uh, sharp ratio between them with uh, small caps actually being a little bit worse in terms of the risk-return trade-off, mid-caps doing significantly better, large caps doing okay. But if you actually focus on sort of the center of the distribution, the most likely outcomes, especially after mid-caps have been underperforming for about two years now, the sharp ratio actually improves significantly for mid-cap stocks. And so that's just kind of a wonky way of saying that for, you know, for the risk that you're likely to be taking on, the likely return is significantly higher for mid-caps. Now, I do have to caution people that, you know, if you just look at it in terms of like trailing price to earnings ratio and things like that, they might not look all that cheap. But if you look at what's the embedded implied growth rate that people are expecting for these mid-cap stocks for their earnings over time, it's come down significantly. And I I find that hard to really kind of square with uh, my outlook for economic growth going forward. So for my money, I think mid-cap stocks are really a sweet spot to be right now. Well, give us quickly your, your view of growth going forward and what that means for overall equities. I think that right now we're going through a troughing period with uh, earnings per share. Everybody knows about how earnings per share for the S&P 500 are declining year on year. You know, we're at about like a seven and a half, nine and a half percent run rate, depending upon how you want to measure earnings, right? If it's operating earnings or actual earnings. But the key thing is, I believe that it's a trough. And so my expectation is that we'll actually see earnings per share begin to rise from here going into Q2 and Q3. It's going to be a challenging time for investors, though, because I think we've gone effectively from almost the hand-wringing phase of this mm-hmm. rebound where people are saying, well, why is it going up, to now the nail-biting phase of this rebound where people are thinking, can this go any higher? So we might encounter some choppiness here, especially as we approach the June FOMC meeting. We also have issues going on you know, with the Bank of Japan. Right. But as we make our way through that, I think that uh, we're moving higher from here on the fundamental basis. Uh, Brian Jacobson with us. We will continue with Dr. Jacobson with Wells Fargo Asset Management um, an intelligent discussion on like what to do with the money, equities, bonds, cash, betting on the first place Boston Red Sox. Yeah. I'm surprised, Michael. You, see, you go on vacation and the whole world turns upside down. Does it an asterisky kind of thing that they played? No. You know what's sad is John Tucker's been here for 23 years, so I bought him back a 23 bottle, 23-year-old bottle of rum. And Except it broke in the suitcase. It broke in the suitcase. It, 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 it's it not got like you all drank over it my tuxedo shoes for the White House dinner. Megan Murphy. <laughs> no of wonder our you had so many friends around here. She me. She goes, "I love your cologne." Yeah, I lick your shoes. <laughs> Megan turns to me and goes, "I love your cologne." What is that? <laughs> All right, let's bring in Michael Barr now. Get the latest world and national headlines, Michael. Oh, gentlemen, thank you very much. Puerto Rico's governor says the island is going to default on a bond payment. Bondholders are likely to ask a federal court to freeze the government development bank's assets, and that could temporarily halt payments to public servants and suppliers. Playground concussions are on the rise, and monkey bars and swings are most often involved. 
A new study from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says each year, 10% of the almost 215,000 kids treated in the emergency rooms for playground injuries suffer traumatic brain injuries. President Obama's oldest daughter will be taking some time off before heading to Harvard in 2017. Malia Obama, who is 17, will graduate high school next month. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? I'm Michael Barr. Thanks so much. Futures up 7, Dow Futures up 51, reversal in the bond market. Lower uh, yields earlier, we reversed back to flat, 1.84 on the 10-year yield. We're having a smart discussion with Brian Jacobson and Wells Fargo on portfolio allocation. Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Driver is brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow, and the Bloomberg Futures Report brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts at low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. stock index futures are higher, signaling a bounce back following the biggest weekly retreat since February. While investors await a reading on the strength of manufacturing industries, we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up 6.5 points. Dow E-mini futures up 52. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 11. And the DAX in Germany is up 1.1%. Ten-year Treasury down 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.84%. Yield on the two-year 0.78%. NYMEX crude oil is up a tenth of a percent or six cents to 45.96 a barrel. And COMEX gold is up six tenths percent or seven dollars ninety cents at 12.98.50 an ounce. The euro a dollar 14.76. The yen 106.67. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thank you so much. It is uh, a rite of passage within finance that you try to memorize an equation. And it's the square root of the face value over the present value minus one. And then you go on to other nuances of something called YTM or yield to maturity. All you need to know is there is a great distortion out there right now. It includes anything that approximates a bond in your portfolio. Brian Jacobson uh, is with Wells Fargo Asset Management. We look at portfolio strategy. Um, let's keep it simple, Brian. Yields are very, very low. If yields go up, price goes down. Explain to me why anyone should have anything but a cursory ownership of bonds in their portfolio. Well, yeah, I think uh, the last year has demonstrated to us why you still want to keep an allocation to bonds. Uh, the consensus going from 2013 into 2014 and then 2014 into 2015 was that yields needed to go up. And at points in time, yes, they did go up, but then ultimately they drifted back down. So even as the Fed begins to normalize policy and continues to normalize policy, that's not a guarantee that longer-term rates or intermediate-term rates or, say, investment 
current grade credit uh, yields are going to follow suit. So I think that uh, you can actually find some a uh, little bit of sanctuary in like a, a core bond, intermediate term bond uh, type product, keeping an allocation there because it's likely going to zig when everything else is zagging. Uh, and if we see a repeat of the volatility that we've experienced uh, beginning uh, with last year, uh, it's actually not a bad place to be. I think that, you know, from my perspective, I think that yields are going to drift higher. But if you can still compound that interest, clip those coupons, uh, they use the classic parlance, mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, you can still get some uh, decent returns that beat inflation here. But what is some allocation mean are you talking about much smaller much less than uh, you know the the 40 percent or so that one would have had in a standard model portfolio it depends on your investment horizon. If you are looking at trying to uh, navigate the near-term markets as far as where to be over the next month or over the next two months, I, I would think that actually we're not going to see a, a, a material lowering of rates. I think that you could see a material increase in interest rates in the United States as fears about whether or not the BOJ is behind the curve or if they've just thrown in the towel on monetary stimulus uh, as other factors come into play. And, and pass, I think that we could see yields on the 10-year Treasury move back up towards, say, 1.9 to 1.95%. So that's a, a big move up, and as Tom pointed out, price, yields go up, price goes down. So near term, I would say that you could under-allocate. But over the intermediate term, so looking out over the next, say, three to four years, believe it or not, like during the 2004 to 2006 Fed rate hike cycle, investment-grade corporates did not yeah. do all that badly. Municipals actually did quite well during that period of time as well. How skewed is a given index fund right now? I think of the huge surge of Apple or in other eras, it's been other stocks. Where I look at a given index, whether it's a normal index like S&P or cap-weighted or price-weighted, I should Dow Jones, I mean, where does that fit in? I mean, how goofy are the benchmark indexes? Let me rephrase this. What's the level, Brian Jacobson, of the goofiness of the Dow and, frankly, of other indexes as well? <laughs> well, there's, there's almost a higher there's a hierarchy of goofiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I'm getting. Think about the, the Dow index is basically it's a momentum index. Excuse me, Brian, I've got to interrupt. Going. Does Brian understand, Michael, that it, it, for the last six days I've had a pina colada in my hand at this hour? Yeah, if he's making those, <laughs> if he's making those, <laughs> that's sets, Brian. Uh, it's just normal. Okay, continue on goofy <laughs> indexes. Yes. So, you know, like the, the Dow itself is price weighted, so it's more momentum. It's the bigger the price, the, the higher it goes. So if the price moves up, you add more to it, whereas S&P, it's more of a passive one. If you go with equal weighted, that's sort of more of a contrarian or mean reversion type of index. So each one has its place. But even if you think about, like, some of these uh, different factor type indices, it's so important to know how they're built and what's in there. For example, like last week, I was looking at uh, uh, the MSCI Quality Index. Excellent index. I like looking at that. But if you look at the, it has a lot of information technology exposure to it relative to, say, what you would get in the MSCI USA index, which is just a cap-weighted one. And so as a result, last week it dropped 2%. That's not what you would expect from a quality-type index. So you do have to be aware of some of the biases as far as the weighting that goes into an individual stock, an individual industry, or with some of the global ones as far as like uh, uh, individual countries. Uh, so they all have their problems, but they're all, all also, I think, quite useful. Let's back up in the one minute we got left. The MSCI, in this case, the USA Quality Index, is it's fun. It's almost like a DuPont ratio. 
They take return on equity, earnings variability, and leverage. I get that. And they sift through for the better stocks. Is that right? That's my understanding of the methodology is that they use a screening method based upon not only the return on equity, but the consistency of the return on equity, making sure that they are low-levered firms. Uh, So there's a number of factors that you can look at, and everybody has their favorite way of measuring quality. And quality, just like when you go out and, you know, buy fruit, quality is in the eye of the beholder, right? And so same thing with some of the indices. Different managers, portfolio managers, are going to have their different definitions of what quality is as well. Brilliant. Brian Jacobson, love having you on. Thank you so much with Wells Fargo on Portfolio Strategy. Michael McKee, just looking at one of the indexes, QUAL, J&J, Pepsi, ExxonMobil, Microsoft, Mr. Buffett's shop, and Apple Computer. Mike, did you go to Mr. Buffett's annual meeting? I wasn't invited. We talked about this. Wait, I wasn't invited either. Yeah, we talked about this last week, and there were some people on the show who, who were putting it down as an event. Even Douglas Cass didn't invite me the year he was there. That's outrageous. Bloomberg surveillance. We're counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today.